Would you take your Bible with me and turn to John chapter 7 this morning? John chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. Um, We're going to read through the end of the chapter, which is amazing. We're going to get through one whole chapter of John's gospel in two weeks, um, which is unheard of um, for us. But if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a stack back there still on that table. Go ahead and pick one of those up. You'll find the sermon text on page 1061. 1061. John chapter 7, verses 25 through the end of the chapter, which I believe is verse 52. There actually is a verse 53 here, but we will, we'll break that off next time. We, we, uh, we are in John's gospel together, which honestly will not be until like after Christmas, because we're going to take a little bit of a hiatus out of John's gospel, and we're going to, to explore uh, Luke's gospel and the, uh, the Christmas story there, because guess what? Um, Thanksgiving is next week, and then Christmas is right around the Advent begins, and then Christmas is right around the corner. Go figure. This morning, though, John 7, beginning in verse 25, I'm going to read this for us this morning. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am going, or where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is this the Christ? Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? 
But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You have opinions and and I have opinions. We have preferences and things that we like and dislike. Because I personally am a a classic overthinker. I have lots of opinions on lots of things, um, which actually has turned out to be pretty exhausting for me. So so in, as, I've, as I've grown older, I've tried to scale back my, my thinking and my opinions. My mom would always tell me, though, as a kid, that I was very opinionated, a very opinionated child, and ready to, to debate the most menial of things. Um, but opinions can and often do change. And I can't remember how many opinions that I hold now, currently, that I didn't hold um, even a decade ago. And if you were presented with new information, your opinion might change. Opinions are subject to change, and and opinions are subject to change based on new information or based on life circumstance. Things in your life might change, and therefore your opinions might change as well. And opinions can change also because they're often contingent upon points of view. Where how we see things and the place where we look at or look at something from. So think of point of view quite literally. Think of the fact that your your feet may be in one place and another person's feet may be in another place. And if they look at the same thing, they might see it from a totally different angle than than you do. Uh, to illustrate this, say that you're at a concert at the Fargo Dome or uh, whatever it's called now. I can't remember off the top of my head. You know what I'm saying, the Fargo Dome. You're at a concert there, and a coworker you talk to the day before the concert, and you say, hey, I'm going to this concert. Hey, I'm going too. And you said, that's great. Um, I probably won't see you there. But, uh, but uh, your coworker says, I've got front row seats. And you say, I'm not quite sure where my seats are, but I don't think they're front row. And so you, you go to the concert, and after, your, after the concert, you tell your coworker that, uh, that the concert was, it was okay. It was an okay concert. But they were like, this is the best concert I've ever been to. And when you start comparing where your seats were, you, you were up somewhere in a corner um, and there was a pillar halfway between you and everyone on stage looked like a, a little ant and the, and the music was distorted and, and it was strange. And they were right up front and they were getting hit with the sweat of the band on their faces, which is gross, but, but maybe that's the experience that they wanted. So, but... Part of your experience in that instance and part of your opinion of that concert is literally based on your point of view. Where you were sitting in the venue um, has much to do with, uh, with the way that you perceive or the opinion that you form about that concert. In our text this morning, people have a lot of points of view and a lot of opinions about who Jesus is. And what he came to do and where he was going and all of these different things and where he came from. And opinions start to fly around quite a bit in this text. Um, Between the crowds and between the the religious leadership, between the Pharisees. And we even are reintroduced in verse 50 to Nicodemus. It's 18 months after Jesus speaks to Nicodemus in chapter 3. And now we're in chapter 7. And Nicodemus weighs in on this whole thing too. Those in this text who see Jesus clearly 
do so because they're given the proper point of view. We see all of these opinions about Jesus, but many, many of these things that people say are from the wrong point of view. And so far we've seen in John's gospel many times, it's the gift of faith. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit that gives us the proper perspective on who God is and who Jesus is. It is the gift of faith. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit that allows us to see clearly who Jesus truly is. We also see in this passage, though, this morning, that those who have the wrong point of view are on a path to increased darkness. They are spiraling further and further away from the truth. And the reality of this whole thing is where opinions and points of view may change, truth does not change. Truth is fixed. Well, we may, as people who, who only know a very little bit about what happens in the universe and what goes on moment to moment everywhere in the world, well, we may receive new information and our circumstances may change and therefore our opinions and points of view and preferences may change. God does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, as we work our way through this text this morning, I want you to note three things. Um, the first thing I want you to see is that there are many opinions about who Jesus is. And then, second thing is I want, to, I want you to show you the, the frustration that others have with Jesus. And then finally, this morning, the truth that Jesus brings. So, right out of the gate, we see these opinions. And I don't think it's very hard to see these, but I kind of want to point out each of them as we as we walk through this text, um, I want to point out all the opinions that we see about Jesus, all the points of view that we see um, about Jesus here. And there are several of them. Look with me at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is? The Christ? So some of the people in the crowd are looking at the fact that no one is actually taking action against Jesus. We've already been told on several occasions that, that, the, that the religious leadership wanted to kill Jesus, that they wanted to take him out. Um, but no one was actually acting uh, against him. And he was wide out, out in the wide open right now. Um, he's, like, uh, he's like a big buck walking across the field. And, and no one's taking a shot. No one's taking a shot at Jesus. That was a metaphor off the top of my head for all you hunters. Um, and maybe not the best, but you get the idea. He was out in the open. He was wide out. Uh, he, he was just out there. And nobody was taking a shot. So the people say, well, no one's actually going after him. So maybe they actually do believe that he is the Messiah. But then look at verse 27. They say, but we know where this man comes from. So then they turn, turn, turn around, and then now, now they're going to argue from the other point of view. We know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. It was a firmly held belief in the first century uh, by the Jews that, that they wouldn't know where, uh, where the Messiah would come from. He'd just kind of appear one day and start delivering the people out of their political oppression. Um, but they didn't know where he came from. And so he, because they did know where he came from, uh, because they knew his parents, 
Jesus can't be the Christ. He can't be the Messiah, right? And then we're told, look down the page a bit further, and then we're told in verse 31, yet many of the people did believe in him. They believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So the sheer volume of signs that Jesus has done so far uh, in his ministry seems like evidence enough to them that he is, is the Christ. Even though they know where he comes from, surely the signs that he's done, the healings that he's performed, the turning the water into wine, the multiplying the bread and the fish, surely these things are indicators that he is, in fact, the Messiah. Would you then go all the way down to verse 40? When they heard these words, some of the people said, here's a few more opinions in quick succession, in verse 40. This really is the prophet. Now, we've heard people say this before in chapter 6, I think in verse 15. They say, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. They saw Jesus as a great prophet like Moses. And then, some others say, this is the Christ. They fully believe, for one reason or the other, that Jesus is the Messiah. The arguments for Jesus as the Messiah are compelling to them. Others still said, or begin to ask the question, is the Christ to come from Galilee? So that's the northern part, right? The northern part of, of, uh, of, of Judea, or not Judea, but the northern part, or north of Judea. Is he to come from Galilee? No, he's supposed to come from down south. He's supposed to come from Bethlehem, right? And he's the offspring of David. So it can't be him, right? They, they got the interpretation right because Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They just didn't quite see how it all pieced together that Jesus was born there because his parents had to go there for a census. So, and then he grew up in Nazareth. So they didn't see clearly Jesus' past. And if someone had given them that information, maybe their point of view would have changed. But the result of all of these questions and all of these opinions that swirl around here in this text is what's described in verse 43. This is the important part of of everything that we've heard so far. Look at verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. Now, think about this for a second. Um, Many people, you've heard this often recently, and probably throughout your life in different, at different capacities. But many people have commented recently that in our country currently, people are more divided than they have ever been. Now that's an opinion too, that's a point of view. But the reality is that, yes, if you look around and look at the current cultural, political climate, things seem pretty, pretty divided. It seems like the gap between one side and the other has opened up even wider than it was previously. We... You, you and I, right now, if we're paying attention to the world, know what division looks like. We know what being divided looks like. This is not something that we need to guess at. We have some pretty practical examples in, in our world. But here's what I want you to see when we see the opinions here about Jesus and the summary statement in verse 43. So there was a division among the people. What John, the gospel writer here, is driving us toward is a better understanding of truth. A better understanding of truth. Because at the heart of unity is truth. 
and opinions, or at the heart of division, we see in verse 43, is confusion and opinion. So the heart of unity is truth, and the heart of division is confusion and opinion. And this division here in our text occurs because of the unresolved questions that so many people have, because of all of the opinions flying around. We have another example of this in Scripture. We have many other examples of this in Scripture, but here's one of them in, 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 in Corinth. The Apostle Paul uh, addresses the divisions in the church in Corinth right away in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. He says in verse 10 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, we need to understand what Paul is saying here. The church in Corinth was divided over who they followed. They were being divided over who they thought was the better teacher, who they thought was the person who they should hitch their wagon to. Um, And in verse 12, Paul says this. He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So you see that? Like they're saying it's it's Paul or it's Apollos or it's Peter or I follow Christ. And that last group of people, that sounds good, but kind of what they were saying was like, well, you guys follow them. I'm gonna follow Jesus, right? And they were using that as as a way to one up one another um uh in their debates. It's sort of it's like if you have a disagreement with someone and then you say, like, well, I'm just gonna do what Jesus did, like, and throw it back in their face. And the Corinthians were drawing these weird lines based on their opinion of who they thought the best person to follow was, or who is the best leader, or who baptized them. But Paul says that that can't be the case. That's not the way that it should be. But, but why? The question is why? Why shouldn't it be that way? Again, we're, we, we've been told that division is bad. And yes, it is. But why? Because opinions are subject to change. They're subject to how I feel, to my point of view, to my circumstances. The information I do or don't have access to. But truth stands outside of all of that. We should not be divided over opinions. Rather, we should be united by the truth. So back in our text here in John chapter 7, they... We, we need to think to ourselves, why doesn't Jesus just clear it all up by stating who he is? Why doesn't he just get in front of everybody and say, hey, I'm the Christ? And they'd be like, okay, great. Um, we're, we're about a chapter away from an instance where he's going to be very explicit in, in a large setting. At the end of chapter 8, uh, in, in verse 58 of John chapter 8, Jesus is going to to say pretty clearly, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, we'll look at the context of this in, in a while, but, but the reality of what Jesus says here is that he is making a deity claim. He is claiming to be God because Abraham lived a long time in the past. And he's saying, I was before Abraham was. That's a big, a big claim. And then they come back at him and they're like, you're not even 50. How, do you, how, can, how could that be the case? 
But it can be the case because Jesus has existed in eternity past and he's making a big claim here. And so in John chapter 8, they begin to, he begins to be pretty explicit with them about who he is. But their response to that isn't, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thanks for clearing it up. Now we get it. Their, uh, their response in verse 59 is they pick up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hides himself and goes out of the temple. So when, even when Jesus gets even more clear about who he is, it just makes them even angrier. The, qu- the question is this, why, why doesn't everyone just hop on the train and believe that Jesus is who he says he is? We have, we have all of scripture before us, all that God intended to give to us about and communicate to us about who he is, about who Jesus is, about who we are, about what's required of us, sits before us today. It's in your lap this morning. All of that is there. And so why don't people, when they see it, just be like, okay, and accept it? Why not? That brings us to the next point. The frustration that we see with Jesus here in this text. So the crowds and the people had all of these opinions. They had these points of view about who Jesus is. But now, as we are introduced to the Pharisees here, the Jews, the religious leaders in this text, we see actual frustration. We see a lot more than just um, just opinions. We see men who are angry. Things are heating up. Look at verses 33 and 34. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So Jesus tells the Pharisees, tells the religious leaders, that, that he is going somewhere they can't come. Now that, that sounds annoying, right? Like that, To them, they're annoyed. In verse 35, this is a power-hungry statement. Where does this man intend to go where we can't find him? And then they speculate about where he's going. It's sort of like the bad guy in a movie. Like, there's nowhere that you can go that I won't find you. Like Liam Neeson and Taken. You can't hide from us. That's the tone. They're frustrated. They say, does he intend to go among the, the Jews who, who went out in exile and never came back to Jerusalem? Does he intend to go about among the Greeks and teach them? Because we could find him there. But what they hadn't considered is that Jesus would, once they got their hands on him to kill him, would be raised from the dead on the third day and ascend to the right hand of the Father. That's where he's going, that they can't come. Their statements are ironic and foolish. Jesus would go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks. Jesus would go out into the world, but he'd do it through his church. Verse 32, right? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about these things, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So their frustration also leads them to uh, their frustration also leads them to 
send the temple police, officers here would be like the temple police, to go and arrest him. But look down the page to verse 45. Those temple police come back and uh, they say, why didn't you bring him to us? And they said, no one ever spoke like this man. (laughs) Have you also been deceived? That's their response here. The guys who they went to send to arrest Jesus didn't do what they were supposed to do. And this contributes to more frustration. And then we meet Nicodemus again. I said this is 18 months after Jesus' initial encounter with him. Nicodemus seems like he's follower of Jesus now. He seems like he's, he's good. He's moving that direction. Maybe slowly, but he's making strides towards, towards seeing clearly who Jesus is. He reminds the Pharisees of what would be fair and just according to the law. And then they lash out against him. They say that their, their response to him in verse 52, Are you from Galilee too? Now that's a slight. Remember, if you remember all the way back into verse or into chapter one, um, Nathaniel says at the beginning of the book, when Philip calls him to come and see Jesus, he's, Nathaniel says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, that's like, that's a backwater place, right? That's not a place that any, any good, nothing good comes from there. Nazareth is in Galilee, and to identify with Jesus, it would seem like Nicodemus is doing here, would be some, someone who comes from a worthless place. We're like, you come from a worthless place too, Nicodemus? And then they say this, which is a really interesting statement. They say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, these guys knew their Bible. It, that's not a true statement. There are at least several Old Testament prophets, including Elijah and Elisha, Amos and Jonah, and maybe a few others, who came from Galilee. <laughs> Why would they say this then? I think at this point, they're so frustrated that they can't think straight. I think they're like seeing red. <laughs> you ever been that frustrated? Or you're like that frustrated in a situation that, that like, your peripheral vision starts to close in and you're like tunnel vision. I think they've got tunnel vision here and they can't even remember basic truths about God's word. The Pharisees are so frustrated with Jesus that they can't even think straight. They can't recall simple details that the scriptures are clear on. Here's the point of all of this. Many people have opinions about Jesus and are divided. But the religious leaders are frustrated and their minds are being darkened. The frustration that they're descending into here continues to darken their minds and drive them away from Jesus. So that when he makes the explicit statement, I, before Abraham was, I am, at the end of John chapter 8, they're going to pick up the stones to stone him. The truth was standing right in front of them. But no matter how clearly he revealed himself to them, they descended further and further into their frustration and anger. And it would become more and more difficult for them to see what was true. Right in the middle of this text, though, this is going to take us to our next point. Right in the middle of this text, though, we have a declaration that Jesus makes in verses 37 through 39. This is the truth that Jesus 
brings. Jesus is speaking openly. And here on the last day of the feast, it was called the great day, the last day of the Feast of Booths, the text says he stood up and cried out. He's not hiding. Notice the contrast here between the crowds and the religious leaders and, uh, and, and Jesus. The contrast here shows us that Jesus was willing to stand up and shout out the truth in the midst of everyone. Well, the religious leaders and the, the people sort of are muttering in their backroom conversations. Jesus is out in the open. He was right there in the middle of everyone. And here he cries out. Jesus operated in the light. The Pharisees sent the temple police to do their dirty work. But Jesus operates in the open. He operates in the light. So I think the question that we should be asking in the midst of this, where Jesus speaks here in the open, is who can make things that need to be plain, plain? Who can clear up the confusion? Who can clear up these opinions? Who can give the proper point of view? Who can reduce the division? Who can set aside our frustration and bring us into peace? Jesus gives the answer. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John, the gospel writer, makes this statement. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. It's the Holy Spirit that brings life to the heart. It's the Holy Spirit that can reveal truth to the mind. The Holy Spirit uses God's word to reveal truth to us. Verse 39. For as yet the Spirit has not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This was coming for them, but it's a reality for us. The Holy Spirit is here. If you've professed or if you've believed, like, like John says in verse 39, whom those who believe in him were to receive, that's present tense now for us. Those who are in Christ have received the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit uses God's word to reveal truth to us. And by receiving the Holy Spirit, the event that would come after Jesus' death, burial and resurrection and ascension, we might know truth. So. The thirst that you and I have to know God and the thirst that it would seem like the crowds had to know God by asking all of these questions about who Jesus was. There's like, who is this guy? We want to know. We're, we're thirsty for an understanding. The thirst that you and I have to know God and understand the things that Jesus speaks of and to understand God's word is satisfied through the power of the Holy Spirit when our, when our eyes are opened to truth. Those who believed would, fully, would understand fully when the Holy Spirit was given to them here and these things would be clearly revealed. Friends, there are men and women who study their Bibles, who know it inside and out for their entire lives, but do not know God because it's the gift of faith and those who receive the Holy Spirit to whom the, 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 and the illuminating power of the Spirit to whom uh, the, 
truth of God's word is revealed. It's only through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit that you and I can know God and know his son, Jesus Christ. That's what's missing from the crowds here. That's what's missing the frustration that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were descending into. The Holy Spirit needed to reveal to their heart the truth about who Jesus is and for their minds to understand and know. Let me give you a handful of takeaways as we wrap up this morning. Just three, three things. Three things. Um, I think the, that we can dr- drive, derive these specifically from this passage. The first thing I want you to take away from this passage is this. Opinions should be held in their proper place. One of the biggest problems in our world and the divisions that we see kind of swirling around and the gap that seems to be opening up between one side and the other um, is because people seem to be elevating their opinions to the position of truth. Now, I could go into a lot of detail on this, I think. Like when truth becomes relativized, when people say things like, you speak your truth or what's true for you may not be true for me, things like that, that makes truth internal and not external. And so, of course, opinions become truth in our world. But opinions are not truth because we are fallible. We are limited. We are creaturely. And so we cannot know, know what is truth. Or we can know what's truth, but truth is not defined inside of us. And truth has been really redefined as something internal. Um, That is a dramatic perversion of truth. Because Jesus is going to say very clearly in the 14th chapter of John's gospel that he is the truth. That he is the truth. And all truth resides then with God. So Christians should reject the type of thinking that says that truth is or begins in the individual. What is true is, uh, is what God has said is true in his word. Not how people perceive the world around them. That's not truth. Not what people prefer. That's not truth. Truth is external. Truth is objective. Truth is constant. Many people in many churches are willing to fight and be divided over their opinions and preferences. Just like the church in Corinth was when they said, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. They were willing to be divided over personal preference, which leader they liked or who put them under the waters of baptism. But this shouldn't be the case. Oftentimes in churches, and maybe you've been part of these, where musical styles or color of carpet or length of sermon should not be grounds for or have become grounds for, in those cases, divisions in the church. Or where people make statements to get people to do things, like saying like, I don't think Jesus is like, or the Jesus I know would never. Those need to be avoided at all costs. Friends, who can clear up the differences that we have? You have opinions and I have opinions. That's not evil in and of itself, but it becomes a problem when we start to consider those opinions as truth. We as believers, as those who are in Christ, have been given the Holy Spirit. And so we can know plainly what God has said to us in his word. So we must ask, what does God say about that or this or whatever thing stands before us as a church? 
What does he say about it in his word? Putting words in God's mouth to match our preferences or opinions is manipulative. And making issues of things that go unaddressed in God's word is divisive. Opinions are subjective and internal and changing. Truth, on the other hand, is objective, is external, and is constant. Jesus is the source of truth. God is the source of truth. The way to hold our opinions loosely and to be firmly grounded in truth. We need to be firmly grounded in the truth of God's word. Otherwise, we will quickly blur the lines between what is true and what is opinion. So, first, opinions should be held in their proper place. Second, this one is, track with me here. Unity should never be sought at the expense of truth. Unity should never be sought at the expense of truth. It is the Holy Spirit who illuminates truth for us. But those who do not believe in Jesus, they do not have the Holy Spirit. Look at the dramatic change uh, in the disciples once the Holy Spirit was given to them at, the, at Pentecost. Go read Acts chapter 2. And then the rest of the book of Acts. You'll see a very different portrait of the men who are, who are described to us in the Gospels. You'll see a very different portrait of what's described to us of these men who are confused often by the sayings of Jesus to men who are, who are rooted firmly in, in all that Jesus said and did. And as a church, Buffalo City Church, Christ and him crucified is what unites us. Christ and him crucified is what unites us. Our unity is defined by that reality. Our our unity isn't defined on agreeing on all of our opinions and preferences. It's nice when we do agree on secondary things, but, but those secondary matters should never have the power to divide us. And sometimes we look to be unified regardless of what's true. But friends, we can't have unity with those who deny Jesus is God. We can't have unity with those who claim that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant word of God. We cannot have unity with those who attempt to make works part of our justification. We can't have unity that deny that God created two genders and that biological sex corresponds with those things. We cannot have unity with those who claim that killing life in the womb is acceptable. Because God is clear on all of those things in his word. It is what God has said and what God has defined as true. So what should we do then? Should we start bashing people who have believed these lies? The the answer is not at all. Like the Pharisees, their minds have been darkened. But rather, friends, we should engage humbly, patiently, and appealing to men and women to come to Christ like like he himself does here in verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If you know anyone in your life who denies the truth of who God is, go to them and say, come to Jesus. If you're thirsty, come to Christ and drink and receive the Holy Spirit so that you might also know truth. No one is saved by right thinking. You're not saved by right thinking. I'm not saved by right thinking. I'm not saved by understanding properly the doctrine of justification or biblical manhood or womanhood or or a right view on abortion. Our salvation comes through Jesus Christ and Him alone. And unity is reserved for those who know the truth by coming to Jesus. 
Jesus is going to say it again coming up in chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We can only be unified in truth and never at the expense of it. Last takeaway. We can only know truth by coming to Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. We can only know truth by coming to Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. Jesus says to people here, while opinions swirl around, the confusion seems to rule in the conversation here. In verses 37 and 38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now don't compartmentalize this statement. Don't compartmentalize this. We can only know truth by coming to Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. Don't say, we can only know truth about some things. We can only know truth about spiritual things. We can only tr- know truth about the gospel. We can only do No, I'm saying you can only know truth about anything in the reality in which we live by coming to Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. All reality. Everything that is and everything that has ever been in eternity past to eternity for future. The only way to know truly that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is always true because God never changes. He is sovereign over all of creation and is a Trinitarian God 3 in 1. Earth is orbiting the sun today and has been every day since day 3 because God wills it. Your body, you're going to go eat lunch. Your body is going to take in, take in the food and digest it and turn it into energy and send you out into the world to do great things. And the, the reason that works is because God says it does and he created us that way. I'm not just talking about spiritual truth in this statement. I'm talking about what is true about everything. Jesus shows us truth and we can know that truth by receiving the Holy Spirit. If you're confused about the world around you, the division and the opinions of others, the science, the data, the call is to know truth. Jesus is the truth. When you come to Jesus, you'll never need to search for truth anywhere else because all the source of all things will be in you. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water Before we're done, let me say this. You're in church this morning, and these are kind of the things that you expect to hear from the pulpit. But let me appeal to you. Jesus Christ is the truth. Many of you have suffered in many ways recently. Stop looking for answers outside of Jesus Christ. You'll only be disappointed. You're thirsty for understanding, to make sense of many things. Illness, physical pain, death, economic hardship, anxiety, frustration, confusion, concern over cultural issues, feelings of loneliness and despair. You're thirsty for something that can treat your guilt, the condemnation that you feel, the unforgiveness that you can't seem to turn the corner on, the sadness over broken relationships. The hurt you know will be dredged up in a few weeks as you sit around a table with family members. You're thirsty for solutions. For a marriage that doesn't quite seem like you're on the same page. 
for wayward children, for a job that right now you feel pretty stuck in. The only answers for all of this is Jesus and more of him for all of those things. Look at, look at what he's given you. Look at what God has given you. He's given you this group of people in this room this morning. He's given you his word. He's given you his Holy Spirit. His word to communicate truth. His spirit to illuminate that truth. His people to oppress you and to encourage you. To build you up in that truth. Don't, don't neglect them. Know them. God in his infinite kindness, has reached out to you and shown you this morning exactly what it is that you need. You need to know Jesus. So open his word this week, even if it's been a long time. Be together with others in community this week. Something Some of you have let events of the last year cause you to drift into inconsistency here at Sunday mornings with God's people and community. Realize that God has given you his Holy Spirit. He, he is showing you truth. He can cut through the confusion of your day-to-day. He can strengthen you, show you truth, and assure you of your position in Him. Friends, may we come to Christ, we who are thirsty, believing that He can show us truth and cut through the confusion in our world. May we be united in the truth that He brings. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your spirit who gives us the the ability to see clearly and to know you on a deep and intimate level. God, if there's any confusion that's reigning in our minds here as a church, God, if there's any confusion that that is present in our hearts as individuals, God, would you drive us to your word this morning? Would the Holy Spirit impress upon us so heavily that we would not be able to do anything but search for solutions in your word? God, we're grateful for all of the ways that you provide for us in our lives. God, we're thankful for all of the ways that truth has been made known and revealed to us in our day-to-day. God, many of us have experienced a lot of suffering. Many of us have experienced a lot of frustration with our lives and what's going on in the world. God, would we see very clearly that you, Jesus Christ, are the only way to have peace, to have life, and to know truth. God, and again, may we be united in this truth as the Holy Spirit reveals to us on a more intimate level who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen.